Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Kendall Deneen, and today I'm joined by Dr. Sarah Riccardi-Swartz to talk about her anthropological monograph, Between Heaven and Russia, Religious Conversion and Political Apostasy in Appalachia, published last spring by Fordham University Press. The book examines a community of American converts to the Russian Orthodox Church outside of Russia, also known as Rokor, detailing the relevant histories, religious and political beliefs, and practices of this community in West Virginia. Sarah is currently an assistant professor of religion and anthropology at Northeastern University, where she is also an affiliate faculty member in the Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies program. Welcome to the podcast, Sarah. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me on. My pleasure. All right. So to get us started, can you tell the listeners a bit about yourself and sort of how you came to the project of the book? Yeah, um, I think you've done an exceptional job introducing me, Kendall. So thank you for that. Um, But I will say that I've always been interested in, as a scholar in social transformation, um, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to look at an Orthodox community in the United States. And to give your listeners a little bit of a background about my work, I started in the Missouri Ozarks. as a graduate student in my first graduate program, um, working with a group of Orthodox Christians. And I was thinking about issues of social politics and digital technologies and rituals of world building. And I knew that I wanted to work um, in another community of converts. And so when I had the time to sort of unfold this idea into a monograph length project, I looked at this community in Appalachia And I saw a community that seemed to be transforming Orthodox culture in a very distinct way. And so I originally uh, went down to Appalachia in 2015. I stayed there with the community um, the next summer. And then the year after that, I filmed a documentary with them um, a few months before I actually started my field work. Uh, And I stayed with them for 12 months. And uh, it was very interesting to me that the issues of reproduction and transformation um, were something quite different to my interlocutors than I thought at first. And I really let their uh, understanding of the world guide me. And so ultimately they weren't as interested in questions of um, uh, materiality that I was or iconography, but they were really interested in sort of the political dimensions of world building. And so my interactions with them in the first few months led me to ask questions about political conversion and what it means to be an American citizen who is Um, defined by and um, supports Russian religious values and political ideologies. Thank you. Um, Would you tell us just a little bit more actually about your sort of research process and methodology? Yeah, sure. So I um, I spent a year, as I said, working with this community that was between uh, late August of 2017 and 2018. And that was around nine months after the inauguration of Donald Trump. So, you know, throughout the United States, it was a particularly interesting political moment um, by and large. And I think it was specifically heightened in this sort of close community. So I lived there full time. Um, I participated in everyday life. I'm an anthropologist. So that means that I'm always um, working with a community. And so I attended church services and birthday parties and outings. Um, In terms of methodologies, I did what's called qualitative research. So that includes participant observation, 
meaning I would attend services and document what was happening. Um, plus sort of semi-formal and formal interviews. And um, the difference between those would be that a formal interview questions would be given in advance and people would have time to sort of contemplate what they wanna answer. And semi-formal interviews were sort of less structured. They were on the fly where people said, hey, I, I wanna tell you about something. And I'd say, okay, do you mind if I record it? So that would be a semi-formal interview. Um, the formal interviews were sort of a structure of, of um, a hybrid structure of like life story. So people would tell me about their lives and why they uh, found meaning in orthodoxy. And then structured questions, sort of demographic questions and um, questions about political values and um, what issues were meaningful to them and why they found um, why they found Russia particularly interesting um, as a, a political safe haven for them. Um, in addition to that, I also interviewed members of the larger community um, in Appalachia. So around the town, which I call Woodford in the book, which is a pseudonym, I interviewed uh, religious leaders and uh, local politicians and citizens. And then after I had come back from the field, as I was starting to sort of write up my work, um, at the, the very, very end of that, in, two, in 2020 during the pandemic, I also interviewed former monks from the monastery. So monks who had, who had been at the monastery for quite a long time. And right before I had come to the monastery, they had left. And I interviewed them via Zoom. And it was quite fascinating to listen to um, their stories of why they had been part of the community, but then why they left. Um, and alongside of that, I think my final methodology would be digital ethnography. Um, which was interviewing folks online and sort of doing critical textual analysis of the content that Orthodox Christians produce online. And I came to this sort of interest in digital ethnography um, in part because I, I work on media, but I was also sort of pushed that direction by uh, the Orthodox folks in Woodford who were really uh, quite active on Twitter and YouTube and Gab and Telegram, all those different platforms. And so the digital research that I did alongside of my physical fieldwork really helped, I think, inform and shape my book. Um, and it actually helped shape my next project, which is on digital information networks and um, online religion. Right. So in your introduction, you write that for the converts to Russian Orthodoxy, you learned about, quote, to align with post-Soviet Russia meant to align with God, end quote which I thought was really interesting. Can you sort of unpack this for us a little bit? Um, what is it about the relationship between the political and the relig religious, excuse me, following the fall of Soviet Russia that appeals to this community? And where have we, according to the, the converts you studied, um, sort of gone wrong here in the US? That's sort of a big question, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, actually it's it's it seems large, but it's actually quite simple to answer. So <laughs> um, it's a great question. Um, after the end of the Soviet Union, the post-Soviet Russian Orthodox Church sort of reclaimed um, a space in the public sphere that they'd been denied for a long time. And with that came an emphasis on what they saw as a traditional lifestyle. So what I mean by that is like the heteronormative family, uh, focus on social, uh, moral policies that would um, help support the heteronormative family. And that was very appealing for this group that I worked with. Um, most of them saw 
uh, Vladimir Putin as a, a really religiously inclined politician and his support of the Moscow Patriarchate, uh, his sort of reconfiguration of Russia, maybe even a new Russia, we might call it, was very appealing for them as a sort of symbol of morality, a beacon of morality in, in the world. They believed that the United States was on decline. Um, in part, this was because of things like um, different gender pronouns, same-sex marriage, trans rights, and they were really concerned. They thought that in a sort of apocalyptic way that the world was beginning to crumble around them. And so Russia's sort of arguably supposed um, new focus on family values was really salvific for them. You know, this is a time in, in the world where they believe that most of the Western countries were failing to protect the family structure. And the family structure for them was the bedrock of all morality. And so converting to Russian Orthodoxy meant sort of realigning oneself politically. And that really opened a door to them. They said, look, we can find uh, solutions for our problems somewhere else. And they turned to post-Soviet Russia. Um, in part, they turned to them because of religion, but they also were really concerned about um, this decline, this moral decline that they linked to secularism. And secularism for them is not just a sort of product of modernity, but a product of liberal democracy, which I think is really important to note. So liberal democracy creates for them the hellscape, the political hellscape of um, secularism. And that is expressed for them through LGBTQ plus rights, feminism, abortion, secularism, et cetera. So democracy and the diversity that comes from a democratic country was not godly for them. And democracy was above all the creation of humans that wrecked um, the divine ordering of the world. So in this sense, post-Soviet Russia is on the right side of the cosmic battle for the world. Yeah, that's fascinating. Thank you. Um, could you talk a little bit about the, the historical, political, and religious forces that led to the emergence of Rokor in the 1920s? Sure. Um, I don't want to weigh down your listeners with a ton of like, complex political and religious uh, history that sort of led to the creation of Rokor because it's extremely complex. Um, but I will say that the Russian Orthodox Church outside of Russia, um, Rokor, which is also known early on as the Church Abroad, um, has maintained many of the rubrics and ideals of the pre-revolutionary Russian Orthodox Church um, in the diaspora, and that includes the United States. So after the October Revolution of 1917, um, the Russian Orthodox Church authorities realized very quickly that in order to preserve the church, um, it, which they saw as sort of in opposition to Soviet power, they would have to leave Russia and what was becoming the Soviet Union. So they formed um, administrative offices abroad. And in 1920, they start calling themselves the Russian Church Abroad. And this uh, transformation, this moment where they decide to call themselves the Church Abroad, proves really important for the formation of Russian Orthodox culture and practice in the diaspora, especially the U.S. Um, it's not until 2007 
that they're once again reattached to the Russian Orthodox Church in Russia. And so they have this very long period of isolationism that um, helps define them as a community internally. In fact, um, some of the early Russian Orthodox writers in the Church Abroad call it the crystallization of the church. So things that they really loved and admired from the church prior to the beginning of the Soviet Union, they kept. And in keeping that and not having sort of canonical affiliation with other churches, they preserved what they saw as the integrity of their um, community. So that's the sort of quick snapshot of how this church comes to be. It's very, it's very much in opposition to Soviet power, and it's very much in support of the czar. And um, that moment of crisis for them becomes instrumental in creating um, what they will be over the course of the 20th and 21st century. So you talk about how people have tended to theorize religious conversion um, and how you are sort of, I would say, theorizing it differently, um, mm -hmm. specifically, you know, a conversion to Orthodox religious groups. So what is it that drives folks to convert to Rokor? Like who's choosing to convert? And perhaps we could also discuss like, what does that process of conversion look like? Yeah. I mean, Orthodox conversions, like any conversions, are context and time dependent. And in my book, I argue that they're always political. Um, and I, I think that is the case, um, especially now if we look at, at who is converting, right? Who is selecting to be part of Rokor? So let me take a step back and just say that Orthodoxy in the United States, if we think about it, is really an immigrant faith, right? It's it's the um, expression of immigrant traditions coming to the United States and saying, we want to form our parishes, we want to form our religious life, we want to make churches in the United States. Now, we have this long history of, of immigrant practice. Well, how do we get converts? They start in the 20th century, in the late 20th century, starting to convert to, to Orthodoxy. We have earlier, uh, smaller uh, conversion populations in Alaska during the 1700s with Russian fur traders. But if we're thinking to sort of the contemporary context or the, um, at least in the 20th century, conversions really didn't start until um, the late 20th century. And what's interesting to me is that not all converts are reactionary. Some people convert because they marry in. Um, they convert because they really like orthodoxy. Maybe they were Catholic and they just wanted a little bit different form of um, traditional Christianity. So there's all sorts of reasons people convert. It's not always reactionary. Um, but what we are seeing now is a very interesting rise in um, what I would term reactionary folks. So folks hailing from evangelical and Catholic backgrounds who are already deeply uh, conservative politically, and they are finding uh, orthodoxy to be quite appealing. Now, what's happening internally is that they're having a really large hand in shaping, um, and I would argue colonizing, a sort of new social ethos in U.S. orthodoxy. And this growth of converts um, in these conservative forms of orthodoxy, and, and I'm thinking here specifically of Rokor and the Russian tradition, it sort of reflects a, a shift in how religion is perceived of in relationship to American um, politics and, Amer and the American cultural body politics. So you asked me like a really important question, which is why folks are converting specifically to Rokor. And um, 
The answer is that they're looking for historical Christianity outside of Western secularism. They want something that is uh, mystical, that they believe has uh, withstood the test of time. And they really think they found that in Russian Orthodoxy. They say, look, the church survived. It withstood Soviet persecution. Russian Orthodoxy in Russia is experiencing a revival in the post-Soviet moment. And that's really appealing to see a church not wither away, but sort of remain stalwart. Um, on top of that, they're really also very interested in sort of Russian Orthodoxy's unique political ties. And by that, I mean um, the fact that Russian Orthodox culture uh, prior to the Soviet Union was one that um, saw the czar and uh, religious hierarchies working in tandem with each other. And that, that's really appealing for a group that believes that um, something like democracy is of the devil. So a monarch is really, really appealing to them. Um, the other question you asked was about the processes of conversion. Um, and I don't know how much you want to dive into on that. Um, well, I was just sort of, I mean, maybe if we could just give sort of like a, I don't know if there's like a couple things you want to spotlight or like a general overview. I'll sort of leave it. Yeah, I'll leave it up to you. But yeah, an idea. I will say this, um, when folks have already been baptized in another uh, Christian denomination, when they're typically received into um, an Orthodox community, they're chrismated, which means they're anointed with oil, holy oil, um, and they're not they're not typically baptized. Uh, folks who are converting to Rokor are baptized, and what that signals is that they are um, more traditional in their approach to accepting converts. So for someone who's already traditional and focusing on sort of um, a more conservative branch of orthodoxy, they tend to select Rokor a lot of times, even just on the uh, processes of conversion, because baptism is so important to them. So it's, it's a moment for them to say, hey, from the very beginning, we can see that this community is ultra conservative and they take it seriously even through the processes of conversion. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting. And if you don't mind just speaking to like, in terms of who's converting, are these folks from Appalachia or are they coming from other parts of the country when they're converting into Rokor in West Virginia? Yeah, so it's um, when they're converting in, it's typically from around the area. Um, if they are already Orthodox, they're, they might be moving into the area. But folks would drive upwards of two hours each way to attend um, the parish or the monastery. So you have a good radius of people um, in Appalachia converting to Orthodoxy. It's an, and interestingly enough, it's not always people in the town who are converting, but people sort of uh, farther out, um, coming from parts of West Virginia, um, Ohio, um, and even parts of Kentucky. I think that leads us nicely. You mentioned the parish and the monastery. Can you tell us sort of what the relationship is between the parish and the monastery, and then? if we could talk a little bit about just like what is life like in this community more generally? Yeah. Um, so I will say that <laughs> the monastery and the parish have had a very um, complex uh, relationship. It was built on a really long history of tensions um, between this monastic community that wanted to focus on being monastics and a community of people um, right at the beginning that moved to be close to the monastery. And the community would ultimately become um, the parish, which I describe in the book. So by the time I got there in 2017, um, because this community started right at the beginning of 2000, 
there was an amicable relationship between the two organizations. I mean, there were still a, gr a great deal of issues. And most of this stemmed from economics. The monastery was far more well-off than the parish, but there were also sort of social conflicts and personality conflicts. So I would say that I, in the book, I treat them as one community, and I would say that they very much see themselves as one community. But there's still a lot of sort of tensions brewing, and um, there's some very large personalities at both institutions that can create a lot of drama between the two organizations. Um, you also wanted to know sort of what the community was like. Yeah, what's life? What's life like? Sort of. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I would have to say that life in the in the Orthodox community there is tempered by the fact that they're living in um, life in a small town, uh, a small town in Appalachia that is very similar to most small towns throughout Appalachia and the American South. It's rural. It's close knit. It's hardworking. Um, what I found really interesting is that the Orthodox community, and I'm talking here about the monastery and the parish, was really sort of isolated from their non-Orthodox or what they might call um, heterodox uh, neighbors. And so when I was in town, like if I was at Walmart or if I was interviewing a pastor, they might remark to me that um, the Orthodox are are good people, but they keep to themselves. Um and I think it might be helpful to just give your listeners a tiny bit of context about this community. I don't know. Yeah, I, I think that would be, yeah. Okay. So uh, as I said, it was founded in the early 2000s. So there's a men's monastery of approximately, at the time, 30 monks, and then a few lay people who were attached to the monastery. And this monastery is really high up in the mountains. Um, it's sort of east of the town. It's um, very remote, very hard to get to. At the time I was working there, it was the largest English-speaking Russian Orthodox monastery in the world. And um, the parish that was about seven miles away had approximately 100 members. And it was more centrally located in the town. So it was like right off the main highway that cut through the town. And it served the families that had moved there to be close to the monastery. Now, in terms of demographics... 95% or more of the monastery were converts and 90% of the parish were American converts. So you had a very, very small amount of Russian immigrants. And those were mostly women who had married American men. Um, and the, the community was really well-educated. There were doctors, nurses, lawyers, really intellectually minded folks. Um, a lot of people had college degrees. Uh, graduate degrees. Um, it skewed Caucasian and predominantly male, again, because of the monastery. And I think most people there would probably call themselves middle class. So, um, you know, that's sort of the social demographics. I'll say in terms of politics, there's a wide range of uh, political labor labels that were tossed around. So a lot of people consider themselves alt-right or far-right, um, nationalists, uh, monarchists, uh, some people call themselves fascists, but they were all right wing. Um, and so that's that's sort of the, uh, I would say, the demographics of the community. And life in that community was not unlike life in any sort of closed circuited, um, tightly knit conservative religious community. People knew each other. They took care of each other. Um, but they were, again, sort of seen as uh, outliers in the community. A lot of people considered them to be Catholic. Um, and they didn't know a lot about them. So they were always um, 
suspicious of them in some ways, I would say. Um, let's talk about uh, Father Seraphim Rose. Um, I know his story and his work, they're very important for this community. So if you could just give us a little information about who he was and, and why he's so important. Yeah, sure. I think um, Seraphim Rose is probably one of the most influential but understudied figures in Orthodox Christianity in the United States. Um, he was an Orthodox Christian convert and monastic who lived during the 20th century. Um, he died in 1982. And he was sort of a product of that mid 20th century, like Southern California, Anglo-Protestantism um, sort of milieu. Uh, he also went to Berkeley, studied at the University of California at Berkeley, really incredible scholar of Asian religions. And he was also an incredibly ardent admirer of Russian history and culture. And that's how he sort of first got involved in Russian Orthodoxy. He uh, went to San Francisco, which was the Russian Orthodox uh, epicenter on the West Coast. And um, he was chrismated into the Russian Orthodox Church in 1962. And so after he sort of leaves, um, he leaves sort of the academic life. He converts to Rokor in San Francisco. And he becomes a monastic and he forms a monastery that still exists today in Platina, California, in the mountains. And his impact, I, I can't even begin to tell your listeners, Kendall, what an impact he had on Russian Orthodoxy in the United States. He starts publishing English language um, content, which was incredibly important in gathering converts at the end of the 20th century. So he's publishing things on creationism, on UFOs, what happens to your soul after you die. Um, and people just like really flocked to him as sort of a guru of his time. And why he's so important in this community is that his conversion, uh, his conversion narrative specifically really mirrors conversion narratives of many young white males who um, become monastics in Appalachia. And actually at the monastery, um, he's on the reading list. People read him as novices. So his, his focus was on traditional forms of spirituality. He was devoted to Russian Orthodoxy. And he had sort of what believers, be, what believers tend to believe were prophetic um, apocalyptic concerns about um, social moral values. So it makes him a really relatable figure for these converts. Yeah, reading about him, I thought was just very fascinating. Um, he had a pretty incredible life. Um, and I think, you know, you also talk a bit about um, about his like personal life and his sexuality and the way that that sort of has complicated him. So I wonder if we could talk about, you know, um, you've already spoken to some of the sort of anxieties, I think that um, change, changing sort of like gender norms and things like that are causing for people in this community. But if we could talk about like, how do people in Rocourt sort of understand gender and sexuality according to um, maybe a kind of nostalgia about the family and the mm. past and this, and this apocalyptic future that seems to be looming? Yeah, I mean, I think like many far-right religious communities, Rocourt is, is really focused on what they perceive of as this decline in traditional social moral values. And they want to, as you sort of mentioned, nostalgically return to a time um, that they perceive of as um, normative. So when the gender binary was the norm, when women stayed at home and cooked and baked rather than being sort of an essential part of the public workforce. And um, 
the move towards progressive social values around gender and sexuality are concerning for this community because they believe that these values have spiritual meaning attached to them. So to, to say it quite simply, um, they believe that God will eventually become so frustrated at the decline in morals that the world will end apocalyptically. And naturally, that idea gives them a lot of anxiety. I mean, if you're thinking about the end of existence, um, it tends to give people a lot of, of anxiety. And so they return to um, figures like Seraphim Rose um, and like Tsar Nicholas II, um, who I talk about in my book, who give them sort of um, peace, spiritual peace about the future. Yeah, I think that talking about this, like this was so interesting to me. This book is like very far outside of what I do in my graduate work, but it was so fascinating. I mean, so fascinating just on its surface, but also I grew up homeschooled in an evangelical Christian community in Northern Idaho and very rural community. And so obviously it's not the same, but like I grew up with sort of a lot of these anxieties, uh, which yeah. I no longer have, but uh, it was just fascinating. Yeah. To kind of, to kind of delve into this. I think you do it so beautifully. Um, so you mentioned Tsar Nicholas II, and I would like to talk about him and sort of like what makes him so important. How how do people in Rocourt, you know, feel about him or think about him? Mm. Well, uh, let me say this first. The monks at the monastery would often quote um, a Russian saint to me, and they would say that in heaven, there's a monarchy and in hell, there's a democracy. And monarchy for them is the way God orders society. Um it's a way to imbue our social structures with moral values of Christianity and sort of, again, that divine sanctity of the heteronormative family from a top-down uh, sort of system. And so Tsar Nicholas is appealing for many reasons. I mean, first of all, he's a canonized saint in the church. He's believed to have been martyred for, the, for his faith by the Bolsheviks when he's assassinated with his family. He's seen as a family man um, who's focused on more on faith and, and um, his role as a sort of husband and father than a, that of a politician, which may be why he wasn't such a great politician. Um, but I think primarily he's re revered because of that institutionalized role as a czar. So it's not just him, but the very fact that he is a czar. So you have him as sort of this image um, in, the, in this community and in Rocourt more broadly is sort of a martyred king. And that speaks uh, deeply to these men um, who are trying to figure out what their world should look like. Um, and, you know, many of the folks I talked with, they would gladly label themselves as monarchists. Um, a lot of them uh, took the saint name Nicholas uh, after Tsar Nicholas. Um, they have icons of him in their homes. Um, the monastery in Woodford has um, relics. They have bone fragments from Tsar Nicholas. And they really believe that Tsar Nicholas remembers them um, in his prayers in heaven and that the world continues um, and that the Antichrist, which again, they see as sort of linked to progressive secularism, is held back because in heaven, Tsar Nicholas is praying for them. So for them, the role of um, a God-ordained political figure is really key in understanding themselves in relationship to global politics, but also in understanding themselves in relationship to the end of the world. And this relates obviously very strongly to how they feel about Putin currently, right? So if we could, yeah. we could talk about him as sort of a like a redemptive figure, 
you write on page 114, quote, the natural political successor, that he is the natural um, political successor to Tsar Nicholas, you know, according to the members of Roe Corps. Um, so yeah, if we could talk about that, like sort of what is the promise of Putin? How is he sort of relevant to uh, the United mm -hmm. States happening here? Um, according according to Roe Corps members. You know, it's interesting because we don't know the ins and outs of Putin's personal religious life, right? We we can't know for certain if he is uh, a religious figure or if he's, you know, playing a long con. What we do know about Putin is that he seems to at least, I mean, even now after, after the invasion of Ukraine, he still seems to market himself as sort of this devout Orthodox guy who attends services, who has, you know, a spiritual father, who supports Patriarch Kirill, who has seemingly a, a good relationship with Patriarch Kirill. Um, and Putin's emphasis on these, again, these family values and uh, Orthodox Christianity is sort of central in the configuration of um, the Russian nation. And um, which he actually talks about, he's talked about explicitly during this war with Ukraine, that, that uh, Orthodoxy has been central to the creation of of Holy Rus, um, seems to make him a figure that has potential value for these Orthodox Christians. Um, one monk told me he's an echo of Tsar Nicholas II. And I would say by and large, all of the community members felt that way about him. They saw him as sort of this defender of conservative morality. Um, Many people around me would say, you know, the world is going mad, which means the world is going secular for them. And the only figure standing up for morality is Putin. And so here is a nation for them that's sort of wholly outside of Western values and ideas. And that's really appealing to converts. And they see that that's only happening because Putin is at the helm. And, you know, quite frankly, they're done with American democratic, the American democratic project. And so, you know, most of them are not voting. Um, even those who voted for Trump only did so because he wasn't Hillary. Um, they're really looking for a king. And so Putin fills that for them. Um, Putin and now a sort of Viktor Orban in these, uh, these years uh, after I, I left the field, but Putin is still like the exemplar for them of somebody who is a guardian like Tsar Nicholas of these conservative family values. Um, and quite frankly, they're really hoping that uh, Russia will go back to some sort of monarchic governance and that maybe that'll rub off on the U.S. And they also, you know, you talk about how they think of him as like a sort of a particular sort of father figure that yeah. they have a real hunger for. Um, could you just talk about sort of what is that sort of father figure? You know, what what is yeah. he to be like? I think Rokor, like many far-right religious communities, is intensely focused on the gendered structures of power that um, emphasize the importance of masculinity as sort of central to um, uh, the governance of both the home and the nation. So groups like this see modernity and feminism as sort of central to this decline of masculine authority. And that transformation creates, again, that sort of social and spiritual anxiety. So um, the community I worked with, they would talk a lot about um, uh, the fact that they believed we are biologically wired and made to desire masculine authority. And, and that anything 
that subverts that need for a father figure, for a patriarchal figure, for a monarchic figure is demonic. And Putin, you know, he has a very intense masculinity. We've seen him writing, you know, shirtless. Um, he's, he's, you know, does the, what seems to be the polar equivalent of the polar plunge when he's at uh, Epiphany uh, in the waters. And he is really patriarchal in his leadership style. I mean, I would arguably call him, you know, authoritarian. And he promotes, again, these heteronormative family values. So it means that he's championing what they want, which is a normative family structure. And he's offering that to them in a really masculine focused package, both for the nation and for the home. And that that seems really appealing when they believe that they're living in a country that is totally feminized and totally secular. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so I want to talk about this shift that's happened where we, you know, we've gone from, or the community has gone from sort of seeing, or really the US, I think sort of in general, in a way, gone from seeing right Russia as a sort of like a godless place, right? Um, uh, during the, during the Cold War. And then this new belief that Russia, or maybe like returning belief, uh, that Russia is a sort of protector, a beacon of traditional moral values. Um, so I'm just wondering if we can get into like how we're core converts might be thinking of themselves. This was so fascinating, both as like, as Americans and even as like patriots, right? But as well, they're thinking about themselves as devotees to Russia and to and to Putin. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 that paradox, right? That you're like, how how can they think of themselves as both, right? Um, I you know your question it makes me return to this quote that a a, a really old cleric, a, a really old priest in the community, uh, offered to me about Russia, and he said that it used to be in the past that um, conservatives were sort of anti-Russian, right? Um, that they saw Russia as godless, and that the liberals were all pro-Russian. They really supported the Soviet Union, and he believed that in, in the late 2010s, it was all flipped. And he thought it was on a spiritual uh, level. And he said that he saw the two roles of our country uh, completely reversed and that uh, the U.S. represented anti-Christianity and Russia represented Christianity. And so I think for, you know, people who believe that to be American is to be Christian. What do you do if you see America as anti-Christian? Where do you go? And for them, they go towards Russia. Um, I also think that it what helps in many respects is Putin's, you know, sort of romantic vision of um, a world in which Christianity can flourish alongside politics. And that's really appealing to a group that thinks that religion and politics uh, should be totally united. Yeah, that, the way it, like, that actually makes it make sense, right? Like, yeah, there is obviously, yeah, a logic there. Um, okay, so I was really struck by on, on page 127, you mentioned that Rokor members consistently are sort of disdainful for queer people, feminists, trans people, and we've sort of talked on that uh, about that already. But also for the body positivity movement and like as a fat studies scholar, I, you know, my ears pricked up. I was like, yeah. okay, I want to know more about this. Um, so could you talk about this a little bit? Um, yeah. Why why the dislike for the body positivity? Oh, oh, yes. It's it okay. So it really stems out of um these these heteronormative gender role logics, right? Again, they believe that they're the last holdouts to progressive secularism and this sort of LGBTQ plus agenda. 
So anything that's sort of related, right, that seems like it's in the same sphere as um, secularism and this, what they call the LGBT plus agenda, which I'm not sure what that agenda is. Um, so things like feminism or trans rights or body positivity, they're all part of secularism and the withering away of patriarchal binaries. So in terms of body positivity, there's this deep emphasis on sort of subduing the body and bodily passions. So fat positivity, for example, um, for many far-right Orthodox would be giving into pride about the passion of gluttony. And all of these passions are also linked to progressive secularism because secularism is not the work of people, but the work of the devil through people. So this is actually a really important point. I'm glad you asked this question about body positivity because for me, it shows how political values and social morals um, and even sort of inclusion all possess um, spiritual dimensions for these believers. So in other words, the fight against inclusivity and including people and being um, positive surrounding um, various types of bodies is actually a spiritual one for them. Yeah, thank you. I just think that was so fascinating and it to makes total sense to me, especially like thinking about, yeah, having to sort of um, uh, control and contain oneself, right? To discipline oneself in that particular yeah. way with everything we think about fatness totally makes sense. And I have my own uh, criticisms of the body positivity movement. I'm guessing they're <laughs> the opposite of, of the ones that you just are, um, that, that Rope yeah. members would articulate. But um, thank you for talking about that. I just was, yeah, so interested in it. Um, okay. So you write that it's very important for this community to quote, secure boundaries for female participation in the church. Um, and I just wonder, like, we've obviously touched on this, but like, what are those boundaries in terms mm -hmm. of like actual participation in the church? Yeah, I mean, so the 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 church does not allow for the ordination of women. Um, and it's it's one of their big selling points for conservative folks. Uh, and this is again, this is kind of a question about spiritual warfare, uh, because spiritual warfare is ultimately about purity and this emphasis on sort of purity and separation and preservation of the self and the family and the nation, that is all made possible by the gender binary and by gendered roles for female participation. So in order to have the church functioning correctly, you have to have women in particular roles. And um, part of that is saying, look, ordination is only um, accessible to men. And so the patriarchal nature of the church is not only acknowledged, but it's sort of celebrated as this uh, correct structure for religious authority. Um, I mean, in the end, it's really about the divine sanctity of heteronormative gender structures. And, um, you know, God's favor is only going to be there if you're doing it the right way. And the right way is to make sure that women are not serving at the altar in a church. It seems like there is a little bit of flexibility in terms of the right way. And this brings me to this other thing that I was really interested in, which is um, the way that some Rokor, mem Rokor members are identifying with Jordan Peterson, right? Who is supposedly an atheist. Yeah. So yeah. if you tell us about that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. Where to start? Um, I, I would say, okay, Peter, Peter says, if this is, you know, on gender roles, he's, he talks a lot about gender roles and um, traditionalism and sort of the political philosophical sense. Um, he's, he has very long standing ties with Rocor believers in Canada. Um, and all of this sort of makes him appealing. Um, there's a sense, I think, 
after years of thinking about this, that Peterson like somehow can translate the issues that they have with modernity into um, a secular discourse. So those outside of Christianity can understand it. So really he's just useful for their cause, even if they disagree with his theological um, positionality. You think too, like it might be like, because he is like an academic, right? That there's like a, especially if so many members of the church also have like these sort of academic credentials. I just wonder if it's like also a a way of sort of making these viewpoints like more intellectualized, you know, seeming. Yeah, great point. I mean, I think that he's the right type of academic, right? Which is one that pushes back against sort of the status quo of the liberal, what they see as the liberal academy. Um. Okay, so why, why uh, Appalachia? Why is this this region, you know, drawing this group of converts. Um, and you talked about this a little bit, but if there's anything else that you wanted to add about like sort of how their, their like non-homeless neighbors sort of think about or engage with the community, um, I'd love to hear more if, if there's anything else that you yeah. want to add. I mean, the simple answer of why they came to Appalachia is just access. Um, the monastery was previously in Missouri and they uh, were very close. They they were on the same property as a parish, and it was very um, hard to concentrate as sort of contemplative monastics uh, when you have kids and, and families and everybody all around you all the time. And so they were offered a piece of land by a very devout couple, and they were just really thrilled to find a sort of rural, isolated space where they could uh, live out their uh, contemplative practices. Um, the parish is there because there's this pious custom in Russian Orthodoxy that um, you move out to the countryside to be near a monastery because monasteries are seen as sort of spiritual havens. So from the time the monastery forms into in the early 2000s, folks have been moving from all over the United States, from all over Canada to be near these monks. And um, they realized very quickly that they were going to have to have two distinct organizations because they needed a church where they could serve the needs of um families with children and the monks needed space to do their um, lengthy uh, rituals of prayer every day. And so that really led to the creation of the parish. Um, now, in terms of, you know, how they're received by their um, non-Orthodox neighbors, you know, I, you know, as I mentioned early, earlier, there's this sort of sense of difference, right? Folks respect them, but they don't know a lot about them. And one of the things I, I took away with me is that I think on both sides, there's a failure of curiosity that leads to more isolationism. And what I mean by that is there's a, a failure of curiosity on the part of Orthodox Christians there to really engage with community members and really get to know them for who they are without wanting to missionize them, without wanting to sort of persuade them into something else, but just get to know them as people. And there's also a failure on the part of uh, townsfolks to understand or try to understand what this community is doing in their space and uh, why they're living here. Um, and as we know, if people don't have conversations with each other, we become more siloed. So I think that's what's happening there. Um, can you tell us about how Rocor members use social media and how they're sort of reaching out you know, via the, via the internet to sort of build community. Yeah. Um, I mean, Rocor uses the internet like most people do, right. For social connectivity. Um, they also use it to stream things and, uh, you know, search for things, but, um, 
you know, in the United States, uh, converts make up a lot of the English language social media traffic across a lot of the platforms. And they're very candid about um, online about their ideological beliefs, about the fact that they're using digital technology to sort of facilitate social collectivity, um, how they're using it to fight back against the what they call the deep state. There's a lot of uh, conspiratorial thought in these communities. Um, and, you know, it's not surprising to me that orthodoxy finds a lot of its social traction through digital media. Uh, orthodoxy is very uh, geographically dispersed across the United States. I think what's more surprising to me is that um, the connections that are forged online by Orthodox Christians are um, are global in their scope. And they really are transforming sort of the social ethos of Orthodoxy on the ground. So you have a church that um, has built its social logics around a defensive tradition, around a defensive text, and around a defensive hierarchy. And this online Orthodox sort of uh, connectivity has accelerated the use um, and spread of information online, which has transformed um, texts and transformed tradition, and it's definitely transformed hierarchy. And um, I think they're still they're they're starting to at least grapple with what that means um, and uh, how that's going to transform the church on the ground. So for our second to last question, I want to ask you. What would you like listeners and readers of your book to do with the information that you convey? Because you're talking about not just this community, right? But what does this community tell us about what's happening in America and in other parts of the globe with regard to Christianity, the rise of the alt-right and democracy yeah. and like how it might inform how we imagine not only or understand our present moment, but like what is what are what what is the the nation going to look like in the future, right? What, what's going <laughs> to happen um, going on? Well, yeah, if only we had a crystal ball, right, that we could see into and know what the future is going to hold. But um, I think I want readers to understand that the far right is um, much larger and much more theologically and politically and socially complex than what we see in the media. Um, I also want folks to understand that far right worlds that are curated online, because we talk so much right now in this present moment about the, the how the far right connects online, but they're also offline. You know, they... The American far right is this weird amalgamation of groups that that self-select, but then they select each other through through the internet um, to create sort of these these currents of information, of camaraderie, of even uh, sort of disciplinary action. And you know, sometimes when I'm talking about this, I say information, right? That it's they're moving information, and people will say, no, they're moving like misinformation or disinformation online. And I actually say, no, I don't think that's the case because if we say that, if we're talking about these sort of um, generators of reactive dispositions, I think we lose out on a chance to really understand stuff if we say things like they're spreading misinformation or they're spreading disinformation. Um, because my point in talking about both on and offline far-right Christians is to show how their power circulates and how they understand their place in the world. Um, and that circulation happens offline too. It happened in the community I was in. It happens regionally, it happens within a nation state, and it happens globally. Um, and I think one of the things to understand about this community, what I term reactive orthodoxy, is that um, it's a religio-political project, but it's part of this history of American exceptionalism that we have. They have a language of exclusion. 
they have a language of partitioning, like, for example, not having women serve um, in the priesthood. And they have a language of purity around um, sexuality and gender. And all of that language does uh, what I call uh, ideological terraforming, which means this sort of caustic work of breaking up ground and building a nostalgic world from the ground up. And so the panic that we talked about over um, gender norms and the fears over being persecuted in the United States are just a uh, part of this really long history of the American project of Christian conservative domination. So while these folks are sort of reaching out to Russia for examples and ideas, their project is ultimately one that is part of the long history of American Christianity. But we've been too caught up, I think, with um, the shifting sort of political dynamics of evangelicalism to actually notice what's happening with other forms of Christianity. And so if we want to save our democracy, I think it's time that we understand how the religious right is transforming and how it's actually connected to other global institutions and uh, power structures abroad. Yeah. So finally, would you like to tell our listeners what you're working on now and where they can find you and your work? Yeah, so my second book looks at, uh, it's sort of an extension of this last project and it looks at the, the digital flows of racism and fascism um, and the globalizing sort of biopolitics of conservative uh, masculine Christianity. And I draw on digital ethnography um, that I pull, it, I pull it into conversation with sort of the history of American racism and European fascism, um, looking at this sort of renewed focus in, um, on pseudoscience and specifically the idea of physiognomy, which is studying facial features. Um, and I look at how physiognomy is used among uh, white religious men online um, to sort of create what I call that vernacular verification, which is to identify who's inside and who's outside of their group. And in doing this, I show how far-right uh, conceptions of the body are tied to the really long history of biologically focused racism in the U.S., and sort of the disciplinary structures of political authority in Europe. So um, that's my next project, which is uh, just starting uh, very slowly. I'm starting to write it. Um, much of my previous work is open access. So if you Google me, you can find lots of articles and podcast conversations. Um, my book is available through Fordham Press and a lot of independent booksellers. And uh, finally, I tweet for the time being until uh, Twitter is gone. <laughs> Um, at Riccardi Swartz and my website is RiccardiSwartz.com. Awesome. Thank you so much. I think your work is so fascinating. This new book sounds so fascinating um, and really, really important. And I think you did a beautiful job of articulating why. Um, so thank you so much for spending this hour with me. I really loved getting the chance to talk with you. Thank you so much, Kendall.